Hello, happy Monday. Another episode of Life in Red Podcast, lifeinredpodcast.com, Life in Red Pod on Twitter, and Life in Red Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Go follow us, like us, share, subscribe. Please and thank you. I would very much appreciate it. My guest today, uh, continuing on with uh, sharing some uh, incredible stories from my fellow community champions at an organization called Unsinkable. Um, a great platform that I encourage you to go check out and I'm very proud to be a part of. But my guest uh, here today, as well as being a community champion, went through one of the most traumatic stories I've ever heard on this podcast, and we've heard a lot of them, but dealing with his father's uh, decline from disease and uh, eventual uh, taking of his own life, um, battling addiction, battling uh, an opioid addiction more specifically. So we, we have that story shared. We talk about how he overcame that treatment, recovery, and then him deciding to ride his bike across Canada, which in and itself is an incredible accomplishment that amazes me. And I think he said he's done it two or three times now and planning to do it again. So um, his documentary and talking with people all across Canada about the opioid crisis, uh, we talk about the opioid crisis and harm reduction and policy and and how he's trying to make change uh, sitting on boards and working with organizations and charities to bring focus and light to this this crisis that you hear in the news that's going on, you see it on social media, but if it doesn't directly affect your life, I feel we become very desensitized and numb to this crisis. And we have a lot of stigma and, and associations we make with it. So this brings a really, a real human connection to that story. And I hope that people pay a lot more attention to it. This, this person, an incredible individual, an incredible story of, of recovery and, and taking the hardships of your life and doing good with them. So proud to get to know him and work with him in the future. Please give it up for my guest, Chris Cull. You take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Following my unsinkable tour of bringing you amazing people, pleased to be joined uh, by my good friend, Chris Cull. Welcome, man. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me, brother. I'm excited um, for yeah, it, your story, I mean, it, it's something. Uh, you have a vast experience of all the trials and tribulations life can kind of throw at, at you. Um, I don't even know where to start in, in some cases. So, I mean, I'll ask this question very broadly for you. Um, when did you start to experience mental illness? And like, take us through that, the beginning time of, of, of your story. Uh, starting with mental illness, I found when I actually noticeably when, uh, when I was a teenager, um, there's just a few things that are, uh, um, like my, my parents split up when I was three years old. Um, and my mom, my mom moved to Florida or moved to the States when I was, uh, about 12 years old. And I, 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 it, I just wasn't old enough to make sense of it all. And then I kind of held that all in, which 
obviously when you hold in all that all those feelings and you don't know how to make sense of them they can manifest themselves in some unproductive ways and that was the beginning of it uh but it's definitely got much much worse as, as the years went on um my dad who uh he he primarily raised me um he 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 was a paramedic for 27 years and he like, he was my hero and uh when i was coming out of school high school he uh like he he was diagnosed with huntington's disease which is a neurodegenerative disease and um um he ended up losing his job uh losing his license and like over those years and um eventually was starting like his mind was just slowly degrading and that was very difficult to uh to navigate because it was just uh, uh it was just him and i there for years and um taking care of him and um he started drinking very heavily to kind of uh cope with it all and within that like by this point in time like 19 20 years old and he always had said that he was never going to let himself break down to the point where he was like like didn't know like you know what i mean he was just it just to the point where he needed to be put in a home because he like it just because his mind mm. broke down too much and he said you'd never get to that point and I always knew like I mean within that I watched my grandma go through that same thing and like he he just wasn't and I understand why I if I were in that position I I, I couldn't say I wouldn't do the same thing um because it's it's an awful disease but anyway so he when I was about 20 he started actually trying to take his own life and and it was hard it was rough um because i i didn't know i i didn't know every single day if i was coming home to the worst day of my life and then living on that knife's edge for years mm-hmm. it's just like it was just hyper stress for years and then there was one day where he um he had told me that he was going to do it the next day and like fuck that was bad and like I mean I, I so I tried to go to school and do what I do was doing and I was literally sitting in class just like like my stomach was just like turning like I was like tearing up in class and I'm like I can't fucking be here I can't do this I can't let this happen so I drove home from school and literally as the um uh as I was pulling onto my street the ambulance pulled in ahead of me and I'm like fuck shit and then i uh yeah pulled up and yeah, sure enough they went to my house and i pulled up at the same time and then walked in the front door and i saw him sitting there and i was just like oh my god like i mean so that it, there was a couple more incidents like that and that was really it, it screwed my it screwed my head up a lot and then there was some nights where I would come home after and he was he had been drinking and he didn't know who I was. He thought I was an intruder breaking into my house. And then I had to like kind of calm him down and, and let him know. And so it was just years of kind of building up. And then one day um, he went out on a Sunday there. Uh, it was March 4th of 2007. He told me he was going out for but he hadn't been out of the house for a week. So I'm like, you know what, go do what you got to do. But he didn't come home. And then next morning I noticed he wasn't home, but I'm like, okay, so I'm going to go to school. I came just home from school and he, uh, he wasn't, he wasn't home yet. And I'm like, there's something wrong here. Uh, so I eventually traced the retrace his steps back to uh, this, um, the Howard Johnson hotel in Bowmanville. It's called something else now, but um, 
And then I called there and asked and like, did my dad check in? His name is Patrick. It's like, uh, we're not allowed to tell you if he can check in, but, or if he checked in, but is there a reason why he might want to harm himself? And then I'm like, oh, fuck. So I knew the likely outcome was going to probably be the worst and drove over to the hotel, which is literally five minutes from my, where I was living at the time. And got there and uh like I called my brother and I called my aunt and uncle and before I'd lent and said like this is what's going on like I don't this is fucked up and so I eventually went over there and the paramedics uh, who had worked with my dad known my dad I'd met them as I was kids and kind of interacted with them here and there they knew who I was and uh came in and we uh found him together and in, in a hotel room and that that broke me as a as a human being I I've fell apart even though i knew and anticipated it was coming there's nothing that could prepare you for finding your dad in a hotel room dad after he took his own life and um i did i just didn't know how to handle that it was um it was it was heartbreaking and within all that i tried to uh i i, I just did everything i could just to avoid those feelings and that's how uh I'd started actually, I tried uh, using opioid Percocet specifically um, in the probably nine months leading up to that moment of when he passed, because like I said, I was just kind of hyper stressed all the time. And that was seemed to be like, I just wanted to be able to calm down enough so I can kind of push through and get through my days. And um, after he passed away though, that was it. I, I went full head first into that because I didn't want to feel that pain anymore. It was just, it was awful. And so that escalated into using about a dozen or so Percocets a day, then up to about 20 or 30 a day, and then uh, led to using Oxycontin, which is uh, significantly stronger. And then, uh, yeah, I was uh, using up to 580 milligram Oxys a day for about two years. Um, he had left me uh, his home and, and significant amount of money that I just blasted through. I spent six figures on drugs and then within that two years, and then I lost this, his house, he, he had left me. And I just, it, it was a rough ride, man. And uh, from there, um, I, I, I remember sitting down in my uh, basement and just remembering thinking just like how bad I fucked up and how, and I'm like, I gotta start turning this around. And I tried going cold turkey twice. I, my mom lives in Phoenix, Arizona now. I flew down there to try to go cold turkey and do it that way, but it just, I came back and just fell right back into it. And um, so I'm like, I can't do this cold turkey. So that's when I decided to go on the harm reduction program, uh, the methadone maintenance therapy. Mm. And that was, that was its own journey in itself. Um, the first two years I was still using, like, I mean, I got my withdrawal symptoms um, stabilized but there's still, I didn't address any kind of trauma or anything like that. So, and then I actually started using cocaine through that couple of years and um, that, and finally, actually my, my, my doctor who's an incredible woman. I, I love that woman to death. She's uh, she had a, she sat me down and just had a talk with me about it. And she's like, listen, like, I know like you're coming in and you're positive every single day like, or every single time. Like, it's like, you, anyway, she gave me a heart to heart. And then I, I I'm like, okay. So I stopped, I actually stopped using drugs altogether uh, after that conversation. And that was about two years in uh, of the five years of methadone. So 
then uh, the worst was yet to come as far, not with substance use. I'd stopped all the drugs by that point, but I'd spent so much money that I had a, I had a home uh, that I, after I sold my dad's old place, I, I got another place, but I didn't have the money to, to keep up with it. And I, uh, yeah, so I ended up, my gas ended up getting shut off. So I went two years without gas in my home where I was heating water on a stove to clean myself and I couldn't even afford to feed myself anymore. And I was stealing my food to eat and went down to 139 pounds. I wasn't using any drugs at this time. It was just, it was just surviving at that point. And then I got a job working as a, or at, at Walmart in Bowmanville there. And that led a, so this is about three, four years in now uh, with uh, methadone. And then this one incident happened where this guy came up, I was on cash. You, working at Walmart, you just, you take a lot from people because it, 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 people complain enough. They know they'll get what they want if they complain right. enough. So it attracts people who are going to complain a lot. So it, it's just, you take it on the channel all day. And then uh, this one guy came through with his groceries, scanned it all through. And then he had these three apples at the end of his, um, uh, his groceries. So I put the apples on the scale, punch in the numbers. And he's like, that's the wrong price. And I'm like, I just pulled up the flyer, show him it's the right price. He grabbed all his stuff and just stormed off. And I'm like, whatever. And so unbeknownst to me, he went back to the produce department and, and you know, those hard plastic signs that dangle on the produce bins that have the pricing in them. Mm -hmm. So he grabbed that off the apple bin, came back and frisbeed it in my face and cut my nose open to save 50 cents on three apples. Uh, I properly lost my temper. Uh, right. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, bleeding all over myself and shit. So, I mean, I, I just wasn't, uh, that, that was the day I'm like, you know what? I, I quit my job that day because I was just, I was just, I couldn't do it anymore. And then it's just like, okay, now it's like, okay, what are you going to do now? Um, like what I realized was like, I, I was tired. Uh, I was tired of just surviving. I was tired of looking at a clock all day, just wishing I was anywhere else. I was tired of the withdrawals, the starvation, the, the being freezing in the winter time with no heat and gas and stuff like that. And, and, just like, okay, well, what are you going to do? So I knew what I didn't want to do was go back and work, go back to that job. And so I created my own system to figure out what it was I wanted to do with myself, where I wrote down these four boxes of my passions, interests, hobbies, and stuff I knew I hated just to know what bottom would just to know what to cancel out on. Mm -hmm. So I was just like, you know, like I wanted to, I wanted to travel again, because when you're on opioids or methadone specifically, I mean, you can, you're a slave to it. Yeah. It's a ball and chain. Like if you don't have it, you're going to go into withdrawal. And that's the last thing in the world anyone wants who's in that life. And so I like, I'm like, no, I, I wanted to travel. And I'm like, well, I've never been west of Ontario before. So I'm like, but I can't really backpack across Europe. I'm like, you know what? I'm going to ride, I'm going to, I'm going to ride a bike. Cause I was an athlete growing up kind of, but it, but it was and like, it'd been a like, I mean, I hadn't rode a bike in eight years to that point. So um, so the, yeah, so I figured that out and then, uh, I'm like, well, if I'm going to do it, I want to do it for, for a reason. And, and so I was like, oh, you know what, like, I just, I'm going to, I'm going to do it for the, like for the opioid crisis. I'm like, I've mm -hmm. lived this for, for, I've seen things that, and learned things that you can't go to school for that. I had a unique knowledge base that I'm like, you know what I could, I could use to help somebody maybe. Okay. And so I, and then I'm like, okay, well, if I'm going to do that. I want to film it. I've always had a passion for film. I didn't have any experience in film, but I'd always had a passion for it. So it was, okay, well, I'm going to do this right across Canada, film a documentary. And I'm like, okay, well, 
you have no experience in film journalism in terms of interviewing people, public relations, public speaking. I hadn't rode a bike in eight years and I'm still on methadone. It's just like, okay, how are you going to do all that? So started the uh, long arduous process of tapering down uh, from methadone. So I was at 120 milligram daily dose and went down to half a milligram, which took about a year and a half to taper down all the way to that point. And while I was doing that, I was, because I didn't have any like cable internet, much less a computer, I would go on my way to the clinic every day or every week, I would take out three books from the library and knock those out in a week. And I took out every single book I could possibly find and then use their internet and computer at the library just to figure out how to go about all this stuff. And so, yeah, I started, uh, so I started, yeah, started tapering about a year and a half out and then tapered down and was trying to create all these partnerships and stuff like that. And, um, as, as I was tapering and setting it all up. So then I started training in December of 2014. Then I eventually got off methadone on January of 2015. Then I was on the road riding and filming in May of 2015 or sorry, May of 20, sorry. December of 2013 is when I started training. January of 2014 is when I got off and then May of 2014 is when I started writing and filming. All right. Um, let's, let's kind of pause on that because yeah. <laughs> we, went, we, went, we went through it a, a lot there and I, I want to make sure we, we touch on some things. Yeah. Um, and then before we go into that next evolution of, of your journey. So I kind of want to go all the way back to the story with your dad, if that's okay. And I, yeah, I, know, I know that's a difficult subject, but you mentioned obviously the impact, not only him becoming sick, uh, dealing with that news uh, of him being diagnosed, and then through the subsequent downfall of everything that happened after. Were you able to get help? Like, were your teachers there? Were you, at least, did people know enough to, like, be checking in on you? Um, Or, like, did you try to deal with everything that was happening at that time alone uh, I tried to deal with it alone there was uh, somebody who um, her name's Barb I actually have her name tattooed right there mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I was dating her daughter when we when I was leading up to my dad's death and then th- shortly thereafter um, after I came clean to her about uh, opioid like my opioid use and everything like that and that was that was it for her and I um, but her mom, her mom stuck everything out with me to, to, to this day. I mean, she's like my mom. I mean, I'd walk across Canada to help her change her tire if she needed me to. And um, she would, uh, but emotionally uh, speaking, no, I didn't, I didn't, I tried, I go and went to a uh, psychologist and stuff like that. But I mean, mixed with the opioids and then there was no really, a tr- it was imp- almost impossible to address the trauma while I was using opioids. It's just, it, it, it just, it, yeah, I just couldn't mentally tackle it. So I eventually stopped doing that and just continued on with the opioid journey. And how did uh, you, sorry, how did you start that part of it? You know, like I think most commonly with teenagers, you probably turn to cannabis. Um, how did you, kind of like decide or or get offered the the Percocets in the beginning and then how did you continuously get your hands on them so well, I grew up smoking a lot of cannabis um and 
you, you meet people, uh, dealers right. and stuff like that. And then, um, actually, uh, ironically, a buddy of mine, uh, he's, um, I remember I, I, I was given Percocets when like after like dental surgery when I was a kid. And I just remember that feeling it gave me. And then after or shortly before my dad's passing and like I was just so stressed out that I just I needed something to just unwind it. And the, <clears throat> so I talked to a guy I know and uh, he he was able to get them for me. And. Mm-hmm. It was ironically, he, he gave me the conversation when we were on the way to go pick them up about, he's like, listen, man, like, don't go down this path. <laughs> and, you know, like, as he's, as we're going to get them and, and, and he, he, t- he gave me a warning about it. And, um, I just didn't care enough at that point. Uh, all that mattered to me was just, just calming down a bit. Right. So that's, that's how I started. And then after I was introduced to that person who we went and got from, and then I was in, and, and then you, you know what I mean? It's the chain yeah. of, of, it kind of cycles out. Yeah. When we talk about the addictiveness uh, of op- opioids, um, it's interesting that you say that, you know, you had dental surgery and, and you remembered that feeling. And I, from my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, but from the documentaries, the things I've read, the people I've talked to, that the the addictiveness of opioids specifically, that it can really happen to anyone, and that's what makes it so scary, and it's because they're prescribed for things like pain. Like, you could have some back pain, and they'll give you opioids, and you're, like, a successful family man, woman, and like, you know, you have everything, and then all of a sudden, you become addicted to these things because they're so powerful. Like, can you take a little bit into that headspace of like why they felt so addicting? Like, what was that sensation? Like, what was that feeling? Like what was going through your mind? Was there a point where you were like, I know this is wrong, but like, I literally can't stop. Uh, It's for lack of a better wording, it's like a warm hug and you don't, nothing nothing doesn't matter what's going on in your life just nothing all that stress and anxiety and everything just goes away with it and when you're feeling like you can't escape um have be like can't escape whatever pain or or whatever physically or mentally and and this one thing can can take that all away it's easy to it's easy to get there and, and not that only that, like physically, you just feel like head to toe relaxed and, and mm. it's, it, it's easy to get there in a context of, because people don't want to, or like, I just didn't want to feel anything anymore. And, and feeling nothing was better than feeling all the daggers that were coming at me and, and mm. all the stresses of life. But the thing is, you start masking that, uh, all, all that all that pain or trauma or or everyone's case is obviously different. But um, for me, when I was masking all that, then you stop, you stop taking care of your responsibilities uh, when, when that addiction kicks in. And then, then you're, you realize kind of how bad of a position you're in and then you want to do it more because then you, because you don't want to feel about it. And then it's just a downward spiral and cycle. And it's, um, but like I said, everybody, everybody's, everybody's case is different. Um, like not everybody started off with some traumatic event um like myself uh, i mean some people i used with uh you know, it was just they just enjoyed the feeling mm-hmm. and so it's yeah i don't know it's different for everybody right uh, i think for people who really don't understand addiction um 
and and when we talk about things like the opioid crisis when things get so bad so for you you know you came into a bunch of money um you had your the house and you were talking about how you blew through it all and you lost it all um people who wouldn't understand would say you know why wouldn't that be a warning sign to you why would you not why would you not just stop or the famous ronald reagan nancy reagan uh, just say no, you know, um, that like when things are going so bad, I know you kind of mentioned that like once it starts going bad, you get caught in that cycle because as it gets worse, you're like, well, I, I need more and it keeps going. But like what when it's like that bad, like was there not warning signs in your mind that were like, shit, I'm going to lose all this stuff. Like I should stop. Like I'm just. I want people to understand that like, it's not as easy as just being like, well, I'll just go get help. Like I, I just, I want to try to like dissect that mindset a little bit. Well, I'll put it to you this way. Like say uh, you and I are hanging out together and I'm a mechanic and I go tell you to fix my transmission on my car and you don't have a background in automotive and you're like, Oh, I don't know how to do it. And then I start berating you and, and uh, about, well, you should know how to do it. Stopping addiction is, it's a mental health disease. Like it, it's not mm-hmm. as simple as just stopping. It's, it's an obsessive compulsive uh, disorder where it's all you think about once, once mm-hmm. you're that deep in. And to, to they would, there was a lot of warning. I mean, that's why I went on methadone. It was just because of, there was that warning shot, but I mean, it, it, I mean, it takes time to rewire your brain to, to, to right. where, and it's not as simple as just stopping. I mean, if that was the case, then treatment programs wouldn't exist together. If it was, everyone was just able to stop. It's, it's a matter of addressing the and rewiring the circuitry in your brain, because what happens is you, it hijacks the reward system. So that, you know, um, what was the quote again? It's the loss of control over rewarding behavior uh, mm. is how I've a friend of, a colleague of mine has, has put it so eloquently and um, and you you lose control over that and your your mental state is like i have to have this to be happy and to you have and to rewire the brain and, and to get your place get yourself back to where you need to be i mean that's a process it's not a just stop or just say no mm. which i think we all know at this stage in the game it's ridiculous to yeah. <laughs> it's a ridiculous <laughs> strategy to to just say no and not to mention the war on drugs just mm-hmm. shit sandwich but um yeah so it, it's it's not as easy it's um it took years to to get my head uh where and address the things I needed to address and in order to to uh move forward um past the addiction of it I mean it wasn't it took me years to do right and so but I get uh, I I can see where that might come from from somebody who's not engaged in addiction or doesn't or doesn't really understand it but I mean it's uh it's a loss of control you you I don't know how else to really other right. it. yeah it's I mean, like addiction, like severe mental illnesses, like, you know, CPTSD, uh, like uh, dissociative identity disorder. A lot of people like don't understand that loss of control. The, even like a panic attack, like when you're in the middle of a panic attack and you think you're going to die, like you kind of know subconsciously that you're not going to die, but your brain is like, it's so overpowering. Like you, 
it, it that like that part of it just doesn't compute. You think you're you're you've lost all control, and people who've never experienced it don't understand what the loss of control is like. Um, and and that's what makes it so so scary, and and what makes it something that goes on and on and, and cycles like this, even when even in you think you're in like when you're in a dire dire circumstance like losing everything your love life your family your this it's like nothing else matters but that next hit or that next fix i want to talk about methadone because that's something that even i truly don't understand uh what it is why it helps and and you know why that's a part of treatments. Can you talk about a little bit about what methadone is? Yeah, so methadone is uh, what's called a harm reduction program. Um, if you think about it in this context, like how there's uh, the Nicorette to, for smokers, uh, yeah, you're still taking the nicotine, but it's less mm-hmm. harmful. And the same thing down to wearing a bike helmet when you're riding. Oh well, yeah, it doesn't going to stop you from getting into an accident, but if you do, it's going to help. It's kind of so that's the harm reduction problem. What opioid, what it does for opioids is has what's called a longer half-life. So say I take a 80 milligram Oxycontin that lasts me, say eight hours, just arbitrarily. If I was to take methadone, you get yourself to a dose where you it lasts 24 hours so that you don't have to worry about going into withdrawal. Because half the battle with opioid addiction is that fear of withdrawal. I mean, it's the worst feeling ever. And what it does is, is it allows you to stabilize your, your withdrawal symptoms in order so you can start focusing on building yourself back up. I mean, so if I was just on, say, like I said, with oxy, say eight hours, it would last. Then I'm like, okay, I got to make sure I have more so I don't go into withdrawal. That what methadone did for me anyway, it was take all of that away. That, that, that dynamic of worrying about going into withdrawal. So then I could actually start focusing on getting a job and start focusing. And, and then my bandwidth isn't all taken up by the fear of, of being violently ill if I don't have it. So, so what is with, what are, like describe what the withdrawal is like, how, like as soon as eight hours is up, like all of a sudden you're just, you're really sick. Like what, what's kind of going on? Oh yeah. That's oh, the worst, man. It's, <laughs> it's uh, like chills, hot flashes. Uh, your emotional state is up and down. You're crying. You're, you're it, all that stuff that you're masking out. It all hits you like a punch in the face and all the trauma and everything would come to me. So I just bawling my eyes out for, and then, and then, yeah, like just uh, the, the, the cold sweats, the hot, it's like the flu times 10. But when you actually have the addiction piece into it at all, the obsessiveness over that is mm. you'll do anything to get it and not feel like that. And that's where I know what we're, that's where people's um, behaviors can come to a place where you are doing stuff that's not conducive to a, a good life where you're, because you'll do anything to not feel like that. That means you're willing to kind of do things that you wouldn't morally or ethically kind of stand for if you weren't in that state, if that makes any sense. Well, so, things like violence, things like you oh, said, you know, you mentioned or, yeah. stuff like that. And, and your moral compass is kind of yeah. either gone or out of whack. Exactly. Exactly. So, but uh, yeah, no, methadone, it was um, not ever in, 
Methadone is not a cure-all. It's like I said, it's, it's, you're not, you're not going there for therapy. You're going there to stabilize your withdrawal symptoms. Um, The other piece of it is if kind of for people who really want that recovery, I mean, there's, you, you, you have to seek out other, uh, other um, therapeutic options to overcome that mental barrier. Like my thing with getting off methadone, I mean, I tried a couple times to do it and and tried to taper and I just wasn't able to. And then it actually wasn't until I came up with that plan to do the ride and the film and everything like that, where that Mount Everest of getting off of methadone just turned into a smaller step to something bigger. So Mm. mentally it just broke it down to like, okay, you can do this. You, you, You have to just do this in order to get to here. And then instead of that being the be all the end all, it was just like, okay, do this, take the step and hop onto the next level. And that was actually what I found was the difference and that and having an awesome doctor. Um, right. It genuinely cared about my well-being. was, uh, those are probably two of the biggest factors of. Um, so trying to get off the drugs is one thing, um, you know, all that work you had to do all, all the physical, the mental turmoil of, of trying to come off all these things is one thing, but like you, you kind of briefly touched on like that didn't, that didn't solve the trauma that didn't address all the things that you still were feeling and that you've been through and that you were subjected to, especially during like a really formative time in your life, which I think, I mean, I don't know if you're the same way, but like, you know, that's when I really started to experience mental illness, like right after high school into like my early twenties is where it like really just kind of hit me like a ton of bricks. And I, I think a lot of people go through that as well. So while we're all going through that change in our life, you also were dealing with way more traumatic things going on. So obviously that took a toll. How much work did you put into, you know, once that the drugs were kind of like you were off of them, or at least like you knew you were going to be able to come off of them. What sorts of work did you do to, to work on, you know, all that trauma? It's funny. I, well, it's not funny, but I mean, I, <laughs> I went a different route than most people. Um, it wasn't very conventional. Like I didn't necessarily address all the other stuff until after, <laughs> until after mm-hmm. I was off it all. So like I, my goal, like I just wanted to get off this stuff so I can actually live a life that I wanted to live. And, um, it actually wasn't until, so I was on the road doing the ride and, and doing the film and the documentary and meeting all these meeting, literally going town to town, coast to coast on a bike and, and, and talking to all these people and how much I actually learned about myself through talking to all these people was actually amazing. Um, and it put context to a lot of things I didn't understand. And it wasn't actually until after the ride in the film where I went back to go talk to somebody to actually address all this other stuff. And that was, that was a journey in itself. Um, But I think that uh, going back and doing it after the fact, I don't know if it was the right way or the wrong way to do it, but thankfully, I mean, we're here. (laughs) Yeah. But um, yeah. And and, and to this day, I mean, I still go and talk to a counselor. I still, I I have those tools in my toolbox that Mm -hmm. um, to make sure nothing gets pent up too much anymore. And, um, but I I mean, like I said, talking to all those people across Canada was gave me a lot of insight into my own emotions and my own feelings and, and my own, and actually getting down to the things that I was running from. Um, mentally and mm-hmm. so when I got back and you know, I was just like 
I'm like, yeah, I know I just accomplished this massive goal, whatever. But if I'm like, the last thing I want to do is lose everything. I just work so hard to build. And if I do not go back and address this and the, these, these things that, that I never really got to the bottom of, I would, chances are, I'm going to go back down that cycle. And so, yeah, so I went back and started uh, various programs on cognitive behavioral therapy and, um, yeah, just, uh, and yeah, just talking and learning how to, uh, express myself to, to somebody was, it was some of those deeper, darker points was, um, was its own journey, but I mean, it's the best decision ever made in my life. Yeah. It sounds this ride, not only the achievement and the goal, and then all of a sudden the purpose to, to not, you know, like, like this purpose, this ride is what made you really want to come off the methadone and then the training and then, you know, the ride itself, that's therapeutic in its, in its own right. But sounds like this, this total ride was like the whole ride was just this giant healing journey for you where you learn so much of talking to other people. But I think, I mean, I know for myself when I'm by myself, I do a lot of talking to myself in my head, right? I, I dissect all the things that are going on in my life and all the things I'm feeling. I'm like, you know, why am I feeling this way? And I think when you're riding across Canada on a bike, you probably have a lot of time to really think about things um, and push yourself as you're going through the, the physical and mental anguish of, of doing what you were doing. So let's talk about this ride. Where did you start? Where did you finish? You know, like how difficult was this? How jacked are your legs? Um, what was yeah. that? Let's, let's take us through the ride. Yeah. So the ride was Victoria, BC to St. John's, Newfoundland. Um, that was, uh, my attitude was once I, once I was actually, the ride it sounds weird it is weird the ride in itself was the easy part it was mm-hmm. everything i had to do to get to the starting line that was the hard part and now when i'm on the road and riding like i'm like i'm beyond happy like i mean that was my happy place and i'm like i'm, I'm out here i'm doing it and, I'm, and mm-hmm. like i mean i've never felt more alive than than when i was doing when i was going across canada um with the, I mean, I, I, I found that actually using my experience as a tool to propel me forward was a, was a big benefactor where, for instance, like withdrawal symptoms, I've suffered days of, of withdrawals. And the thing was, when you're riding on day four in the pouring rain and you're like on hour eight of this and you're, you don't even have enough time to dry your clothes before you have to hop on your bike and do it all again, that can get to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but my thing was, was like, you know what, this sucks, but it's not nearly as bad as that discomfort of withdrawal. So when I was able to mentally minimize that just by using my experience, that really helped, um, with, with kind of getting through the harder times. Don't get me wrong. I, I did hit the wall mentally on both of my rides across Canada, specifically in Brandon, Manitoba, the prairies have a, uh, a way of, yeah, physically it's easy, but mentally it's hard because you don't feel like you're getting anywhere. <laughs> oh, so, wow, so it's like a giant metaphor. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So it's just like you're going, and I mean, by this point, you've rode thousands of kilometers, and you're like, oh my god, like I get what the hell? And so, but um, yeah, no, it was. 
it was an epic journey. And then, um, like in the fact that I was, uh, I was trying to do something that was bigger than myself uh, mm. and, and something I believed in enough, uh, that where I, I was like, you know, I'd be, I'm going to do it or I'm going to die trying. And mm. had a couple close calls with some trucks and cars and, uh, <laughs> uh, got hit by three trucks in a car between both my eyes, nothing catastrophic, thankfully, but, uh, it was, um, yeah, no, it was, uh, it's the most beautiful experience of my life doing that ride. How, how long did it take you? How, how long were you going for? Like during the day, was it like a 12 hour thing, eight hours? Like some days it was maybe 12, some days it was like three. Like how, how did you try to like plan out the process or was there like a plan in the sense that like, oh, I want to do this by like the end of August because then it's going to get too cold. Like how did that whole, you put that all together to actually do it? Uh, for my first ride, I didn't have a definitive end date. Um, my thing was, it depends on the day, really. Mm. Uh, like, my thing is, I'd rather ride 10 hours in the pouring rain than three hours against the wind. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, if, like, I mean, in the prairies, actually, there were, like, in Saskatchewan, I remember we started the day, and I was, like, literally cutting, like, five kilometers an hour because the headwind was so bad. And I'm like, you know what, boys? we're calling it a day. I'll make up the distance tomorrow. But so, and then actually doing a, so some of the way I say on a nice day where I'm, I think the most I did in one day was 200 and I want to say 67 kilometers in one day, which was through the prairies, but I had to, I went west to east both times because the jet stream runs west to east and you want right. the wind over your back more often than not. Right. So one day I just had a, awesome tailwind behind me i'm like okay i gotta use this and go as far <laughs> as i possibly can in one day so yeah and i made it to moose jaw that one day and um but yeah no uh yeah so it just depended on the day really um as far as where i'd go but my biggest thing was like i would yeah i'd have an endpoint like a town that i that i wanted to make it to by the end of the day but mm. mentally it was always it wasn't hit that point it was just always okay just make it to the next town okay, make it to the next town right. and figure it out and make it to the next town and, and then so forth. So, cause if you think about it in the context of, Oh, damn, I still have 5,000 kilometers to ride. You're going to, it's going to screw that'll scramble your eggs a bit. Mm-hmm. And, but if you're just, it's like that, how do you eat an elephant? You know what I mean? Like it's one bite at a time. So it was just always just get to the next town and get to the next town. And months later, you're, yeah. So you get that with a lot of things yeah, like hockey players, you know, like one shift at a time or one snap at a time in football or in life, one foot in front of the other. Right. If you look at mm-hmm. everything in the grand context of this massive goal, you're going to get psyched out. It's going to mess with you. Um, whereas if you're just like, OK, like the next five minutes, you know, like if I'm on a run, I'm just like, OK, five minutes now. And you just break it down by that. It just but it just seems more surmountable mentally and psychologically. In total, on your two journeys, how long did it take you in total? So you said months, but oh, like, was it like sorry. 30 days, 45 days? So my first ride Vancouver, to, or sorry, Victoria, BC to St. John's, Newfoundland was May 15th to August 27th. Uh, my second ride was Vancouver to Halifax, which is May 12th to August 10th. So three months and for my second, three months and change for my first. And riding every day, or did you like take like a, a rest day here and there? Uh, rest the odd rest day here and there I mean if I because my biggest thing was the ride I was confident I could do like mm. I don't know, that wasn't really the concern my concern was actually the film and getting the stories and right and because that was where yeah no I can ride a bike that 
I, I know I can do that. That's not an issue. But can I actually put this film together and make it as, because the cause was the important thing to me mm-hmm. and making the film was, was just that, that, that portion of it that I desperately want to succeed at. So it was finding the interviews was, was really hard uh, out the gate. Uh, by the end of it, thankfully, I got some media coverage in Toronto and out east. And then by the end of it, people were coming to me for interviews. So it was, it was, uh, but damn, that was, that was stressful. Um, right. <laughs> uh, and, and trying to find all these stories and um, try to document all these different, all the conceivable aspects of the opioid crisis. So, so that was, that was like the, the grander goal when we're talking about the connection to the opioids and, and what the, the cause of the ride was to bring the awareness you were going from town to town, town to town, city to city, uh, destination to destination, trying to find people with experience in the opioid crisis and bring those stories to light. Is was that like the connection you were you were trying to make? Yeah, so I wanted to try to cover all the angles. I mean, like what we were talking about before, like it's evolved to something completely different now. So yeah. some of what's in my film isn't even like relevant at the moment. Um, but my thing was at the time was. Um, so like all the different aspects from harm reduction to like, for instance, in Victoria, BC, there was a, um, there was a nurse that was taking pills from her hospital and she, she had uh, overcome it all by that point, but she shared her story. Then filming in Vancouver's downtown East side, which that I really regret how I went about that. Um, but there, and then uh, I had shared my story with partnership for, for drug free Canada. And then, the uh, mother who had lost her son, Chris, her name is Sharon. Uh, she had lost her son, Christian, about nine months prior to my uh, interviewing her. Um, I was riding through the Rockies and got this email saying, oh, I read your story in there. I'm like, oh, and she shared. And then she told me she shared me with me her story on that website. And uh, we got to talking and then um, she's like, I'm like, would well, you want to sit down and talk about it? And then um, so I got uh, so we met in Calgary, spent the day together and um, I mean, it was a very fresh wound and I actually, I mean, that was probably the most impactful interview personally. And I think in the film where it was just going through her experience because that wound was so fresh and she was just so brutally honest about it. And then, so then it would just became a networking thing where this, I I would meet one person, they would be like, oh, you should talk to this person. And then, mm. like, and then you should talk to this person and then you should talk. To, and so it was a, that was kind of how, uh, I landed all the interviews, but um, like I said, it was just, it was trying to get all the conceivable aspects of the opioid to try to give it a well-rounded view. Um, uh, truthfully, I went in, uh, in retrospect, I went in there with a bias, uh, a personal mm. bias of my own experience and stuff like that. And then by the end of the, it all is just like, I learned so much about it that I had no idea. It, like, I thought I knew a lot about it, like living it for that seven years, but it wasn't until like I was done the ride and talked to all these people. I'm like, no, I don't know as much as I thought I did. And what was some of that bias? Cause I think a lot of us get caught up in the lens of which we view life and like we base everything and seem to think that life kind of revolves around the, our own personal experiences. So like, what was this bias that you went into it and, and how did those conversations kind of change that perspective? Uh, to some degree, it was like, I was ex- almost expecting to kind of just 
meet a lot of people who were like me and understood it, the crisis like me. Right. And then when I talked to other people or uh, like people who had worked in it and, and everything like that, I understood there was a lot more variables to the equation than I was aware of. And like my big thing at the time where I was just, I was help, like, I mean, and I'm so like Purdue Pharma, who uh, is, who, who makes Oxycontin, they, um, they did what's called misbranding their product, meaning they neglected the negative aspects of the reports. And then, so they could push more product to make more profit. And I was, part of me was a bit hell bent on uh, bringing that to light. And I did, but I also understood there was then kind of, by the end of it, I realized that I'm like, there is so much more to this. Yeah, they are a big problem. Sorry, like you'll see it in the media now. They just, mm-hmm. they just uh, went through the, this big settlement for billions um, and admitted their role into it. But um, understanding that uh, there's so many variables in the equation that I wasn't aware of was an eye opener to me and really made me kind of look at it from a different lens uh, through all the, from the perspective of everybody I interviewed, which kind of, yeah, I don't know. It just changed how I looked at things. Right. Can, do you, do you like know, or like off the top of your head, remember like some of those variables that maybe caught you by surprise that really kind of made you step back and go, Oh, like, I didn't think about that. Uh, like, um, yeah. So because like I interviewed, uh, yeah, like that, that mom who, who, uh, Sharon, who lost her son, I mean, mm-hmm. coming from it from like, actually that was more of the addiction perspective, um, that I didn't, it was like looking through it through the lens of say Barb, who I mentioned earlier, or my own mom right? and, and getting it from, I know, like, I never thought about it like that. And that mm. that's how they viewed me and, and things like that. Uh, there was a mm. teacher, um, his name's Ranteed, who I work with to this day, actually. He, uh, he runs a, he, he had a show on PBS called Drug Class and he's a, uh, he, he runs in Regina, Saskatchewan. And he gave me a, all from the youth perspective. And I didn't really put into context of how, um, how accessible things were getting to the youth um, by that stage in the game. And then, from addictions counselors to harm reduction doctors to um, these nurses actually in Fredericton, New Brunswick, who had this awesome recovery uh, methadone program where they actually focused on and how much like housing and everything plays into all this. Mm. And, 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 and you know what I mean? And it's, it, sorry, I'm getting overwhelmed right now trying to think of all sorry. the, yeah. oh, no, 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 don't apologize. It's just me. It's the hamster wheel. It's turning um but yeah, no, just how many actual variables in the equation there are for somebody to want to, um, that are needed in order for, to, to move forward uh, as a person and get out of it. Right. That's probably the biggest thing. Um, policy-wise, it was, uh, yeah, policy-wise, I was a little bit confused uh, by a lot of policies, but actually in retrospect now, it was just that I didn't know a lot about uh, policy regarding the opioid crisis. It was more questions than it was and frustration out of those questions. But now looking back on it, I, I know why certain moves were made. Mm. But, okay. anyway. um, pause here. I really have to pee. I don't know if you have to use the washroom, but do you mind if I just run to the no, washroom? No, do your thing, brother. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> it's all good, man. I just, I don't want to stop it here. And I'm like, oh shit. Oh no, take your time, bro. Okay. One sec. <laughs> Woo, thank you. Sorry about that. That's <laughs> the first time I've ever had to interrupt a podcast to use the washroom. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, so I want to talk about the work you do now. How, how did, 
did going on this this journey, learning everything that you did, talking to all these people, is that what inspired you and led you to get into like the field and the line of work you you do now? Yeah, it was by chance actually. Um, it, it was just a like I had got because I had, like having went and I'm the only person I know of that went, that's actually went town to town coast to coast studying the problem and that um and then kind of some of the media coverage I got at the end uh opened some doors for me to Mm. come do speeches and and um and talk about either what I found or talk about my own experience and uh working with uh organizations um um like the Canadian Center on Substance Use and Addiction um they asked me to come up for a lunch after it all and it's (laughs) funny enough actually they uh I had actually reached out to them to do an interview uh, with them uh, with my film and I never heard anything back from mm. them and after it was all done. And they're like, Oh, you want to come up and have lunch with the leadership? I'm like, sure. And I brought it up and they're like, we're sorry. <laughs> but um, yeah. So now, and then fast forward to today and I'm on their board of directors of the organization. Oh, wow. So it, it was, um, it's kind of a, a lot of it was uh, I knew I wanted to continue on with it because it, it's something that I've, we I've lost a lot of great friends over the years to to uh, overdoses, um, dozens, dozens of people who uh, undoubtedly would have done a lot of good in this world had they had a, an opportunity maybe to have more time to figure things out. And there's there's a void that 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 was left in there. And and I, I think that's kind of the way I honor them, that it's just that like the the pursuit to kind of always make that positive impact on the very thing that crushed and or sorry that um that took a a lot of great people away from us it's i mean it's something i won't stop and ever doing because it's a void that can never be filled in and um with the actual getting to those uh, positions. So right now I, yeah, so I serve on the board of uh, the Canadian Center on Substance Use and Addiction, uh, the Policy Committee of Canadian Society of Addiction Medicine, uh, the Central East Lynn in Toronto, uh, their Opioid Strategy Action Group. Uh, I live in Durham Region in Ontario, so I'm on the uh, Opioid Task Force. And like a lot of these, uh, uh, and uh, CAMH is a Provincial System Support Program. So, um, I kind of got right place, right time. Like uh, I remember like for the central East Lynn and the, in the Durham regional opioid task force, I was, I was literally in the waiting room to talk to my counselor one day and I, someone had, I had one of my inspire shirts on and a, a gentleman in the room in the waiting room asked me what my shirt was about. So I just gave him a quick rundown of my story. Unbeknownst to me, there was a counselor around the corner who popped her head around. She's like, can I talk to you for a second? And then she asked me to come and if I would speak at this thing called the recovery breakfast, I'm like, yeah, I'd love to. So I went up and did my speech there. And then the executive director of uh, Pinewood, uh, which is the addictions uh, services in, in Durham here, um, asked me to come over and then asked me, he's like, we're putting together a group for, for the Central East Lynn. He's like, would you want to be a part of it? I'm like, sure. And mm-hmm. then being on that, one of the ladies from the uh Derm task force asked me if I want to be there. And that's kind of how I got into those positions. So it was kind of a lot of right place, right time, but mm-hmm. also, but it's just uh, using, using my experience. I mean, that's uh, to, to try to pay it forward. I mean, mm-hmm. this isn't going away anytime soon. And uh, I mean, it's the, 
it's the least I can do to at least try to, like I said, honor my friends who've passed away and, and to try to leave a positive impact that they undoubtedly would. That's an important thing to note. You mentioned it's not going away anytime soon. And I think for a lot of people who aren't affected in some way of this crisis, they don't understand how much of a crisis this is. How, when we talk about it in the broader context, I know you brought up that it's it's been getting worse during the pandemic. Um, we're seeing younger and younger people starting to use and now overdose. How widespread is this opioid crisis right now? Is it, you know, like in, in every town across Canada? You know, what what are we talking about here? Oh, it's staggering. Um, the... So a lot of the deaths right now are coming from illicit supply. Um, so, so they're not pharmaceutical grade opioids um, that are, they're actually people who are actually putting it together and, and mixing fentanyl in it, which is mm. um, like, I, when, it, when this all started, yeah, I know it was pharma had the biggest factor to play into why this was all created, but it's evolved into now where people are going to illicit supplies, not necessarily even knowing they're getting an illicit supply, um, off the streets and uh, the fentanyl uh, and car fentanyl is, is, is taking out a lot of people, but within the, um, uh, within the context of COVID and the lockdowns and stuff, you're having a lot of people using alone. And that's, that's a big factor because there's no one there to uh, give you a, a Narcan or Naloxone, which is an overdose opioid overdose reversal. Um, or people who even know, like, because there's the Good Samaritan uh, Act, where you, if you are using with somebody and they overdose, even if you have drugs on you and you call 911, you cannot be charged. Um, mm. And, but the bottom line is, people, a lot of, there's a lot of factors in it. There's a, a socioeconomic factors um, through COVID, not people not being able to work, people not being able to, but people using alone is a massive part of that. And there's, there's a there's a lot of variables within COVID that's making it a lot worse. And in some areas you're seeing overdose rates double and possibly even triple, um, depending on where you are in the country. It's, it's bad. Um, and right now, even within my own work, like I'm like, I was just thinking about it. I'm like, uh, how do we, how do we, I mean, I didn't know how to like working at it before COVID was, was hard working at it during COVID is has pushed me mentally as hard as I think I have since in the seven years I've been off opioids and working on it. And I don't know how to get ahead of it, which mm. is scares the shit out of me because a lot of good people are going to, are going to be, are going to be taken from all this. And I, I did, I'm not hundred percent sure what to do uh, within the context of my work, but it's, I mean, I have an idea of what I want to do once COVID uh, does level off in a way of how I can best impact it all. Um, but I have to wait till COVID ends and then to try, try to make that happen. But And unfortunately, with the pandemic, you know, the focus isn't on these things. They like in general, they're not on mental health, right? It's on trying to to tackle the virus. And in a lot of cases, rightfully so. That's the most pressing issue that affects the most people. But we're not thinking about all these residual effects of the pandemic. And right now we're definitely, as a 
as a society, uh, as a, you know, pol polit like politicians, they aren't basically doing anything because the focus is on COVID. I know you don't have the answers. I don't expect you to have all the answers. If you did, we wouldn't have a problem. But what sorts of things when you're in this task force, like what are we, what are we working on? Because there's a lot of talk about harm reduction and that also makes a lot of people who don't understand addiction and drug use, um, that, that, that makes them angry. They, you know, I, I've seen people that I, I even know complain and, and make petitions because they don't want harm reduction facilities to be set up because that brings homeless people and they say it brings crime, et cetera, et cetera. You know, what are the things we're, we're trying to do to at least get some sort of handle on it? Um, what's working? What's not working? How can we do better? in your opinion? Well, the thing with harm reduction right now, where you're looking at a lot of advocacy for safer supply, in which case a lot of it, that is actually being pushed forward. Like I said, the opioid crisis morphed from pharmaceutical grade opioids to illicit. And mo most of the deaths are coming from the illicit supply. Mm -hmm. So in knowing that it's the illicit supply that's killing people, then you have to give them a safer supply to make sure, like, I mean, it, it, like I said, it's harm reduction. It's not mm -hmm. necessarily that it's not going to kill them, but it's going to definitely, it's going to alleviate the uh, possibility of something being in those drugs that could kill you. So that, that's the concept behind safer supply. And um, I don't, <sighs> I, I, I advocate for it. I think it's uh, that supervised consumption sites. Mm -hmm. I think that that's been a big contentious issue with, mm -hmm. with a lot of people are like, well, they're going to do it anyway. Why, why like let them kill them? Like, like you know, pardon if I'm frank, but how big of a piece of shit apathetic person do you have to be to, to like, what if that was your kid? What mm -hmm. if that was your mom, your dad, your fill in the blank. And like, like people a lot of people don't just generally speaking until something impacts them personally mm -hmm. they have a really hard time of getting the, the empathy factor of it and i understand that that's that's human nature and i can't i can't blame them for not having that experience and not having the empathy within it but if you come like my thing is always like we are only as strong as our most vulnerable and i i firmly believe that uh the more vulnerable people we can help the better we are as a society and like i said there's a lot of great people addiction is not a moral or ethical failure it's it's a it's a mental health disorder and it, it, it i didn't want to be addicted to opioids <laughs> no one does or or, or whatever other substance uh, that's out there it's just like no i didn't but I don't know. It's like the stigmatization mm -hmm. that goes on in mental health and addictions is absolutely ridiculous. And um, I think if everybody kind of looked at it from a place of, well, what if this was my kid? What if this was my dad, my mom? And because I'm a firm believer that like when somebody passes away from an overdose, there's, there's at least five people, family, friends that, are immediately around that person enough that those people are affected. So when you put those, those death statistics into perspective, I always multiply it by five because 
there's always people around that person that are affected. And that's why we have the conversations, thankfully, to this day of, I mean, it's bad, all those deaths, obviously horrible, but it's good for the awareness that people, more, more people are having that empathy. But my fear is, is that you see on, uh, say, turn on CP24 in Toronto, and then you, there's so many other statistics all the time on, on the opioid crisis. But I mean, it's almost lost its meaning because it, you, you see the stats and you're like, oh, that's shitty. And then you move on with your life. And that's why uh, kind of the work that I wanted to do with my film and even the work I want to do after COVID, I want to document those stories because mm -hmm. I want to humanize people so that people can empathize with the individuals who've lived it. And I think that's really how you change the hearts and minds of people. I could not agree more. And I, I put out a video on social media, I don't know, a month ago, a couple of weeks ago, whatever it was, um, that was basically saying and it was in the context of covid but it can also be in the context of the opioid crisis in terms of war in terms of discrimination and, and stuff that we are so inundated by numbers and statistics and we're surrounded by it all the time that we culturally just become so numb that like when you see like you know 26 people killed in a mass shooting you're like oh thank god it was only 26 like that sucks but there's like almost like well i'm glad it wasn't more mm -hmm. you're, you're not and in terms of the opioid crisis that's exactly it when it's like whatever the number is the i i think i heard 3000 i could be wrong um that like that is a person and like you said that is connected to they probably had a family they had loved ones, they had friends. And like, we can't become numb to statistics. Even with the pandemic and COVID, like you see it all the time. They're like, well, 99.7% survival rate. It's like, we still have like, like, I don't know, whatever it is, like 80,000 people in Canada dead from this virus. Are you saying those people didn't matter? So you could go out to have a beer with your friend? Like, yeah. that's not how this is supposed to work. Like, we're supposed to care. We're supposed to care that somebody has died. It's not just a number on a piece of paper. Yeah. And I mean, actually, I'm not going to go there with that comment, but it, <laughs> it, no, I had a comparison, uh, but I'm not, I think it's probably insensitive, but um, mm. yeah, no, uh, that's this, uh, every single one of those numbers you see, yeah, you might see a number on the screen. I see a family that's affected, friends that are affected and an, and an individual who that passed away that's one person I see on those numbers. And when you multiply that into fill in the blank, I, I, I'm uh, off the top of my head. I'm not sure where statistics are at right now, but mm -hmm. um, it's just like, no, like, like I remember back when I was on methadone and there was a coffee shop around the corner from the clinic I was at and they were petitioning for, to get that closed down. And this is actually literally a month or two before I was actually getting off of it. And that pissed me off so much. And I'm like, what if this was, and that's the same thing I said to him. It, and I probably didn't address it the right way. Cause I got really emotional about it. I'm like, well, what if this was your kid that needed the service? I mean, like, I'm like, this is how it helped me. And then I went to explain about it. This is how it helped me. And I'm going to be off in a couple of months. And I'm going to go do, do, try and do live my life. Mm -hmm. And, but I don't, I, I wouldn't be able to, if that didn't exist. And so I found like almost personally offended by it because it was just, it was, I don't know. I just felt it was really apathetic and um, uh, uneducated on it. But that said, that was a big fueling point for me where I'm like, 
okay, now it's even more important that I do this ride in this film and, mm -hmm. and, and, and give context to, because they're, they're not just numbers, they're people. And that's what I think the, the one thing I hope people take away from any work I've ever done um, is that you know, these are human beings with lives and families mm -hmm. and people that care about them and love them. And the second we dehumanize these people is I'm like, we lose we lose who we are as a society yeah exactly who 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 are we what then what value do we provide anymore if if all we are is just numbers and statistics there's we've lost touch of our humanity and you know i don't i don't want to live that way i want to feel every single loss in a way to make sure that i can do my part to make sure it doesn't happen or you know prevent it as best i can when you're giving a speech, when you're talking about your experience, uh, and, and especially to like teens and, and young men and, and, you know, young people, what's your message? You know, are you trying to prevent people from going on and, and experimenting with drugs? Is it more of a education, be aware? Like what, what's your message? What's your goal when you're, when you're talking to people? Well, my big thing is I never go out and say don't do drugs because um, that's naive. Uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> and that's like going back to the Reagan slogan kind of yeah. thing. Uh, my, th my, like, my thoughts are my biggest prevention tool is helping those kids. Like when it's safe, I mean, what a speech I do at a keynote at a medical conference is much different than what I do at a high yeah. school. So if I do a speak at a high school, like my, I'm of the opinion that I think the best prevention tool you could give people is show them a future they're excited for. And, and then you, and I, I run down a process of how to find what that thing is for you, because no matter what it is in the world, there's an occupation doing it. And so then you, like, I mean, if you ask a kid, what, what's their goal? They're like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but if you ask them in a way that stimulates their imagination, like, okay, well, you were amazing and your life were amazing. What would amazing look like to you? And then, uh, then you see the gears start turning mm -hmm. and like, okay, well, what would you do if uh, money was not an object in, in, in your life? Like, what would you be choosing to do with your time? And then, so I get them to, and it goes back to actually how I formed my own, like I created my process to figure out what it was I wanted to do. And I try to run them through that and then break it down to possible. They write down to say a handful of things, uh, hobbies and stuff that they're, they're really interested in. And then after that, I'm like, okay, now let's backtrack and let's reverse engineer this. Okay. What's what career fields are in the A, B, C, D, and E. And then, okay. And then, then we figure it out. We eventually reach an end point where like, Okay, is that something you could see yourself doing? I'm like, yeah, that sounds awesome. Okay, now let's go backwards and figure out how to figure what that path is looks like. Because there's always someone else out there who's done it before. Mm -hmm. So, and then, I mean, thankfully, they've had a, a few success stories within that. And people um, uh, speaking with at-risk youth specifically uh, the, that were at risk of not graduating, who were actually lost in with with an addiction issues that thankfully I've seen come back from it and but on the other side of the coin with the medical uh conferences or a keynote or whatever it's more ta it's talking to my experience and what I learned uh through that so that because if chances are I'm speaking with a like I'm talking to a doctor or a nurse or whatever and if my experience and my insight into my own experience can help them do their job better. Um, 
I, I lay it all out there. It's, uh, it, it, it's more of my story and, uh, and how I, not necessarily my story itself, but how I went about doing it and where my headspace is at through uh, specific moments of my journey. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's why I kind of asked you some of the things that, you know, that you went through and where your head was at in those moments. Cause I think it's, it's one of the unfortunate things about kind of like the stuff that we do and that like other advocates do for whatever the cause is that like, we have to kind of relive some of our, our worst moments in trauma um, in a lot of ways to try to help people understand like where you are and like when you're in your darkest moment, when you're at that point, like what's going on through your head. And like that, like you kind of mentioned, like that's how you get people to empathize with you because they're like, you can take them into what you were thinking at the time. But it is, uh, for me, it is like a morbid thought that people can't kind of get to that realization on their own. Like it's important to understand and, and, and learn about what people are going through. But I, I always kind of cringe at the fact that sometimes it's like, I have to expose myself in order for you to care uh, and in order for you to do a better job in certain cases that the, I was actually thinking about that the other day. I'm like, man, like it sucks. It sucks in a lot of ways that we have to do that. Yeah, no, it's been a, that's been one of the hardest parts of, of, of it all because, um, and I'm, I'm writing a book at the moment as well. Oh. And that's been its own journey um, of, because uh, I mean, it, it gets as deep as I can possibly get. Mm-hmm. I mean, but over the years, I mean, getting up on stage and talking about the worst moments of your life and, and, and just where your head was at during the, like, like the time I contemplated suicide and having to talk about that in front of on stage in front of like a couple hundred people, that's hard. That's, that takes a lot out of you. Mm-hmm. And it does suck that you, that we have to uh, expose our vulnerable, like our expose ourselves to, but I mean, Man, if my exposing myself helped those 200, 300 people in that room be able to do their job more effectively and more compassionately with more humility, then that's so worth that moment of discomfort for me to, to, to facilitate them coming to some understanding that they may not have prior to my speaking. So that's how I justify it anyway. It's uh, um, for something I'm sure you've that. heard it and I'm sure you probably thought it that if it saves one life, whatever yeah. we do, like everything is worth it. Um, yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. And like, I'm thankful people like you, like our unsinkable team, like other mental health advocates are willing to put themselves out there because I mean, I know it helps. I, I you know, it helps. And I'm sure you've had stories of people who have told you how it helps. And like that feeling like one, it's like, Holy shit. Like, I can't believe it. Like just me talking, help somebody that that's a weird and foreign thought to me. But I mean, like that you're right. Like that is what makes everything about it. So worth it. Yeah, no, you're a hundred percent on point. You hit the nail on the head. I mean, like it's, it's, uh, when people come to you and say like, I, 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 that's exactly how I felt and mm-hmm. I, I never really knew how to articulate it or understand it. And I never really looked at it that way. And, and I mean, that when you get those messages, like, I mean, it, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing to, and because, you know, this might be the first time this person's talking about this stuff in their life. And maybe that's just the entry, the gateway to them getting some po- the possibility of the help they need. 
Mm -hmm. And I think that that is powerful. I mean, and that's worth doing. And that's why I'll continue to do it. Mm -hmm. Before I let you go, I want to get a sense of the picture, the broader picture of where we're at. Short-term, long-term, specific to the, the opioid crisis. Where, where do you see this going? I, I, you said it's not going away anytime soon. What, what, what are we expecting? You're on that front line of like trying to figure out what to do with your teams. You know, where do you see it? It's difficult to say at this point. Um, uh, it's really, really difficult to kind of forecast coming down the pike with this because one, I don't know when COVID's going to end. Yeah. Uh, or, well, no, 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 no one does, but I mean, it's just that I, I know that these overdose deaths are going to continue to climb, continue to spike. Um, and uh, like, like I said, there's a lot of things that factor into that equation, like uh, people using a loan because of COVID um, and eco- socioeconomical uh, issues that, that lead into uh, drug use and wanting to escape their lives and going to that. I mean, so there's a lot of things that factor into it. And mm-hmm. um, it's how the crisis has evolved through the pandemic is, I mean, there's variables that I still don't understand within it. Um, But uh, like, I mean, it's short term. uh, I think safer supply is going to be the thing that saves a lot of people. Yeah. Treatment, everything's a different conversation, but as far as actually keeping people alive in order to, for them to get the help they need, I think safer supply is the way to go. Um, we do have provinces who throw their ideological, um, foot forward that I think is detrimental to, uh, helping the opioid crisis in any way. Um, that, and the thing is, we all need to be on the same page in order to fix this. And when we're having, especially in the polarized environment we are in now, um, and people drawing their line in the sand with ideological rather than um, looking at the evidence-based, uh, it, it's, it's staggering at some points. It's frustrating. But I mean, that's the way it's always going to be. And I, I don't, I don't <laughs> it just, it's just the world we live in. Uh, long-term, we... My biggest thing is we need to start thinking, playing this like a chess game and trying to be three, four, five steps ahead. And instead of, I mean, we're going to have to, like, in order to get ahead of us at any point, I think we have to be more proactive than we, we have been. And I, like I said, and what that looks like, I don't have the answers to, but it's just we have to be doing more than what we're doing. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of people that have given their heart, blood, sweat, tears, and heart and soul into even making it to this point. And there's like I, my hats off to all those champions because they're 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 legitimate heroes for for the work they do. Um, but now moving down the pike, it's it's um, it's it's going to get worse before it gets better. And that's that's it's, it's shitty to say, but it's the, the reality of the situation. Um, but the best we can do is, um, I don't know, continue on to, uh, to humanize the problem, um, so yeah. that more people do have an empathy towards, uh, our vulnerable members of society. And, um, I think the more we can do that, the less we, the more we can break down stigma, the more we can break down stigma, the more people can go get help. Yeah, so- no, it's, and you know, we, we didn't, we barely talked about policy. We barely talked about organized crime. We kind of, we're talking about it before we turn the mic on, but just 
all the different elements at play. And I, I think you nailed it, that we need to humanize the problem and break down the stigma um, and realize that safe supply and harm reduction right now is like the best we have until we can figure out how to get the, the rest up, like out of there. Because right now, it, like we're losing, we're losing the battle and it, people need to understand that. Um, mentioned you're writing a book. I, you have the documentary, you're speaking, all these different things. How do people find all that? Do you have a, do you put that on, up on your website, social yeah. media? So my films on my website, uh, inspiredbyexample.ca, um, book I'm writing that's still, writing a book is probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life. Wow, and that says something. <laughs> I don't know. I just don't, think, I don't know if I'm cut out to be the writer or not, but mm-hmm. I mean, but it, that mixed with like exposing just all these deeper side of this my story that i've never really delved into before um that and then when this is uh covid's all over i want to do one last ride with uh with the show um where my film was going town to town coast to coast documenting these stories and then sharing my own story within the film part of it all was going out and doing all this crazy stuff i dreamt of doing that i couldn't do when i couldn't travel uh Mm. so i hit a bucket of golf balls off the mountains in bc jumped out of an airplane over montreal etc and so now I want to, my idea is to, um, to do a show about uh, addiction and um, do like an episode for province where I'm going up uh, province to province and, and uh, taking people's stories who went to the complete brink of destruction and came back and then taking them out to do something they've always dreamt of doing. So, oh, oh. yeah, so it's like a mega wish foundation for uh, addiction and mental health and uh, oh, Netflix. Let's get on this. If you're listening. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, no, but, um, that's, that's the dream right now. And that's something actually I was working towards before COVID. And then when COVID kicked off, it was just like, you know, you, you got to shelf that for now. So that, uh, that's what I'm come hell or high water. I'm going to put everything I have into it. Once COVID levels off, uh, that's, that's, that's my priority. Um, right now I just want to finish a book. I have an apparel line called inspire and yeah, I'm just going to continue with uh, working as hard as humanly possible on uh, on all the um, panels and boards I have the privilege of being a part of. So it's um, it's been an adventure. The adventure's not over yet, but uh, I don't know. Well, man, thank you one for for opening, being so open, and, and sharing that that really, I mean, that difficult story um, that I just. There's really no words uh, to to kind of put that into perspective, but thank you for that and uh, for all the work you do, because if it wasn't for people like you, I mean, who knows how many lives you've saved, like you can't quantify that. So like we need people like you who are who are spreading the, this information, which is super important, but also on the front lines doing the groundwork as well and, and putting in these policies and advocating and pushing governments because like if it wasn't for people like you, this would never get better and it could be a whole lot worse. So you're the man and I appreciate you coming on. Thank you. Thank you, Ryan. And thank you for what you do, by the way, because I've listened to a bunch of your podcasts now and I'm like, there's stuff I'm learning about myself while listening to your podcast. And it's, it's actually, it's, it's actually really amazing the range of guests you've had and their backgrounds. And, 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 and like I said, it's all about humanizing, humanizing the either uh, mental health or addiction. And you do a phenomenal job at doing that. Well, so, my thank you. Um, <laughs> you know, just quickly, I was going to touch on it, but I kind of left it is when you were talking about going place to place and hearing stories and how that just changed your perspective. I mean, like that, like 
my podcast is the less physical version of your ride. Um, you know, it, that's what I wanted to do. Humanize problems, um, show people different lines of thinking and different experiences and different, you know, issues that are going on, whether that be mental health, whether that be race, whether that be scientific. Um, I think it's important and that we put names and faces to all these things that are going on because when you just look at it in social media, like it just, it doesn't resonate and people just learn to scroll by it. And that, like we talked about it numerous amount of times, that's like, that's not the way we can do things. We have to, we have to know that all of these things that go on affect people. And so when you said that, I was like, man, that's the same thing as me. I'm just a little bit more lazy and I'm not going across the country doing podcasts. <laughs> no, I was actually reading through your story too, like a little while back and just, uh, you're kind of actually, what was it? Pause for, uh, pause for pause. Yeah. Yeah. So I was reading about that and I, uh, I, cause my dog Chaz, I have his tattoo and his paw mm. print there. He got me through it all. If that dog wasn't with me through that, he, I, might not be alive today so i mean uh, i was no man, was just i'm just super impressed with all the work you do man it's it's it's, it's awesome and it's inspiring well, uh, and keep doing what you do man i appreciate that we'll have to uh we'll have to collab on some more stuff moving forward for sure oh, i'm always around man <laughs> <laughs> Take the red pill, you stay in Wonderland, and I show you how deep the rabbit